Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, It's afternoon now anyway. It's 12.05, so I should say good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Nice to have you here. It's a privilege for me to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Um, So if you're visiting, you'll want to know that we are studying the book of Philippians. Mark Vrogop, our lead pastor, is away. He's on sabbatical. Um, and he will be back and we'll commence again into our study of Romans. But for right now, we're into Philippians. And in order to set the stage so that we can all be on the same page, I just want to go back and put in context this letter that Paul has written. And if you'll remember, Paul was on his second missionary journey when he was led by the Holy Spirit to go into Macedonia wasn't planning on doing that, but he was, he was drawn by the Holy Spirit. He went into Philippi, which is a small town, a small city of about 10,000 people. It was a city that was right on the road, a major thoroughfare that actually took people up into Rome. And it was a city that was made up of Greek culture, formerly predominantly Greek. Then the Romans came in, so it was a mixture of Greek and Roman culture, a lot of diversity. It was anti-Semitic. There weren't a lot of Jews in that uh, particular city, as evidenced by the fact that um, you'll find there was no synagogue. And in in Jewish tradition, you had ten men. If you had ten men, then you formed a synagogue, right? Well, Paul, who typically preaches and teaches in the synagogue, went into Philippi and did not find one. And so he ended up going outside of the gates of the city and found some people praying, people who were seeking God and so forth. And that's where he ran into Lydia. And Lydia was a person who sold some high-end goods, as evidenced by the phrase purple. That was an indication that these were high-end type of goods. And she, he witnessed to her and came alongside her and her family, and they came to Christ, as evidenced by the fact that they were baptized, right? Then he cast a demon out of a slave girl, ended up being thrown in jail for that, and he then had an encounter with the jailer, and the jailer and his family came to know Christ, and so this church started. And it was a, a diverse church but a very, very close-knit group of people, very um, people who loved Paul. The, it, evidenced by the fact that when Paul was in Rome writing this letter, he was writing to thank 
the people for the gift that they had sent. So it's apparent they think that Lydia was providing monetary support and others were providing monetary support to Paul. So that's that kind of brings us to today. That gives you a little bit of a background, a very intimate setting. In fact, commentators will say that based on the language that Paul uses, that the church at Philippi was his favorite church. And that's how close the relationship was. So what I'm going to do, and I would like you to turn to your uh, in your Bibles to chapter 2 and, and look at verse 12. What I'm going to do is I'm going to land on verses 12 and 13 for a while. And we're going to just dig deeply into those two verses. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time kind of sliding through 14 through 18. And I want to start by saying that Paul's key message in these verses is this. Work out your salvation, and by doing so, we become lights in the midst of a dark world. Work out your salvation, and by doing so, we become lights in a dark world. And I'm going to look at three key areas this morning. Right? One is that the motive for our continued work to our sanctification is found in the previous verses which are Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that Joe Bartimus preached on last week about the humility of Christ and the obedience of Christ and just the example that he set, that that's our motivation. And that answers the question why Paul feels that this is so important to us and why we need to pay attention to his words, to work out our salvation and be lights in the world. The second thing is, is we're called to work out our salvation, but the reality is it's really the work of God. So even though we have a responsibility in it, it's also being, Paul is saying, this is the work of God. So there's that contradiction that we have to kind of wrestle with. And the third thing is, is that he wants us and challenges us to live blamelessly and innocently in the world. Right. And he prefaces that by saying, do not complain, do not grumble. Right. And that is Paul's way of getting at the fact that these people were losing faith. He wanted unity in that church. But the grumbling and quarreling and so forth is based on a lack of faith. And we'll we'll talk about that. So look in verse 12 and you'll see that Paul starts off powerfully with this phrase. Therefore, my beloved. All right. And this this shows this is the beginning. It shows that that Paul really did have a love for this church. I mean, he used the word beloved. And we see that same same word used when God describes Jesus in the transfiguration in 17:5. He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it's a word that carries respect and admiration and deep, deep concern and a radical and powerful type of love for this church. So this is what drives Paul. And we need, we need to get this, that this love that he has for the church is what drives him to have them live and flourish in unity and in harmony, to, to pray and to live out their faith. And, and it's, it's I, very, very similar to a father and his kids, in my opinion. You know, I raised two girls. I had Kate and Lindsay, and they're both in their 30s, and I have six grandchildren now. But I can remember when Kate and Lindsay were in junior high, senior high, 
and the struggles that they faced. They went to a public high school and there were all kinds of things pulling at them and kids and friends that were doing this and we, um, that, that we didn't really care for. And there was one particular day that Lindsay and I were driving in the car and I can't remember where we were going, but I remember her turning on a song and I'm listening to the words of this song and I'm going, oh man, what is this? And so I turned to her and I go, Lindsay, Lindsay, okay, you tell me in your words what they're saying. And she looked at me and said, mm-mm. I go, why not? She goes, uh, I don't want to. She was too embarrassed, right? And so I pulled over. I actually pulled over in the neighborhood and I sat there and poured into her. And I said, Lindsay, listen to these words. You can't even tell me what they mean. I said, how, how can you stand before your father in heaven? I mean, how can you stand before God, right? And listen to this stuff. And it, we had this long discussion on purity and, and, and it, you know, um, it got a little bit embarrassing after a while, all the cars going by, wondering what in the world this guy is doing in this car, you know. But, you know, she really, really appreciated that. And it came out of this love that I had for my daughter, I wanted her to flourish. I wanted her to have a pure heart. I wanted her to be obedient to God. And it was out of this love that Paul really wanted the Philippian church to flourish. Now, I have to share this. Since I shared that story about Lindsay, um, i got to share with you this picture. All right? And uh, this is a picture of Eloise. Eloise Jane Moomau, and that's Lindsay's third child, and it was born less than two weeks ago, and it's our sixth grandchild, and uh, she's a beautiful, I wish I had a picture of her face, because she's absolutely beautiful, and, uh, but I, I have uh, a recommendation to make, okay, for those of you who are ready to become grandfathers, or, or even fathers, um, when your son-in-law hands you their baby, Okay, and says, here, dad, hold this. If your grand, if the grandmother hasn't held the baby yet, I would suggest you decline. All right. (laughs) And say, no, 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 I think grandma needs to hold that. Okay, because I I took her in my arms and everything else. And I'm standing there and then I look at Joanne and she's just giving me the eye like, you know, (laughs) I think she said something to the effect of, I've held every other grandchild as the first one, and now you've taken... Uh, so so anyway, just a word of advice, just throwing that in there. That's free this morning. So we need to recognize that, that this letter that Paul has written, it's full of theology for sure. There's a lot of doctrine in it and everything else. But first and foremost, you know, this is a letter of love. It's a letter of intimacy, It's an appeal on Paul's part to people that he cares very deeply about. And if we don't grab that and understand that, we lose the richness. It just becomes kind of a stale letter. And it shouldn't be. We should really feel and taste the richness of this. And you know what? That's no different than here at College Park. I mean, Mark Rogup. One of the, he is truly one of the best pastors I've ever sat under. I just so appreciate his teaching and his preaching. But there's one thing that I really appreciate as well, and that is what he says every Sunday morning, which is, I love you, College Park, right? 
I love you, College Park. And he means it. I get to work with him. And I know the depth of love that he has for you all and for this church. And his love for us is what makes his appeals that much stronger, isn't it? I mean, when you know someone cares about you personally, that they're not just up there delivering a message, but they care about you, then you have this willingness to listen. And that's a lot like College Park. And it's very much like the Philippian church as well. So that gives you a little bit of the context going into this. But you know, we talked about the word beloved, but I don't think that that word is nearly as powerful as the word therefore. Joe Whitmer a couple of weeks ago says, when you run into the word therefore, you got to ask what the word therefore is there for. Do you remember that? All right. And... But I don't think that there is any therefore in Scripture as big as this. And therefore, I don't think there's any therefore in the history of the world that's bigger than this. And why is that? Because the therefore refers back to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where it talks about how Jesus gave up his glory to take on humanity. Right? He took on flesh. And he was willing to do that out of obedience to the Father. That's huge. There isn't anything bigger than that. The willingness of Christ to to come down to earth, take on flesh and die on the cross is actually, it's just this big, huge event. Now, one of the things that um, I want to try to solidify just how big this is, is I want to take you back to Isaiah And here's Isaiah looking into the throne of God, right? And this is what he says in Isaiah 6. He goes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Imagine that. You know, that's a sign of royalty. When you, The bigger train you have, the bigger the royalty, right? Seraphim were calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it talks about, The threshold shaking and smoke filling the house of God. This is a display of majesty and glory beyond which we've never seen, right? And Jesus, possessing all this, took on a form of a servant and went to the cross for you and for me in obedience to the Father. This is what the therefore is there for. This is our motivation To work out our salvation. This answers the question why Paul would have us work on our salvation. So it's huge. Now when you read Philippians 2, 5 through 11, if you go back and read that, they evoke a lot of emotion in me and I am sure that they do you as well. And Joe Bart last week said, yeah, I get pretty caught up in those verses when I read them. But I want you to imagine for a minute... Paul, imagine Paul being led by the Holy Spirit to work with the scribe and articulate those verses. So here he is, he's verbalizing it, right? Or if he was penning those words himself, we don't know. You can imagine him taking that writing instrument and just pressing harder and harder into the paper, just reaching this crescendo, right? Just amazing as the Holy Spirit was speaking this. And I want to read this to you in the way that I believe, my personal opinion is, that Paul may have been articulating this, right? So he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, therefore, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's a big deal to Paul. You can just feel the emotion. That it had to have existed. But what does it mean? Work out your salvation. Is Paul suddenly saying, hey, look, if you want to be saved, you got to work on it, right? Is he saying, we got to, there's stuff you got to do if you want to be saved. And that goes pretty contrary to Romans. So I want to go through and explain to you what I think he means by work out your salvation. And let me give you some context here going into this though. One, Paul is not talking to individuals here. He is addressing the church collectively. The Greek word for your is plural. So work out your is plural. So I don't think that individual salvation is, is the focus of what Paul is trying to say. And secondly, I think Paul is making it clear that his personal presence is not the motivation. Not only, because it says in verse 12, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. I think that Paul is trying to say, look, you don't need me anymore. It is great when I was there. Here I am in Rome. I'm in prison. You don't have me. Don't be discouraged. You have each other. But more importantly, you have Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. And that's what we need as a church. And we need to constantly remind ourselves that this church is not built around one person or a group of leaders. This church is built around Christ and the Holy Spirit who happen to use leaders in the church to drive our mission and vision forward. So what I do believe this means Moving from what I don't think it means, but here's what I do believe it means. The word salvation is meant to say, be our justification. It does not mean saved. Work out being saved. It means, and it doesn't mean work out your justification because we are justified. And by justified, I'm, I mean to be justified is to be declared righteous and in a right relationship with God. It's the removal of guilt and the payment of debt we owe God for our sin. That was accomplished when we placed our faith and trust in Christ. We became justified at that moment. In other words, we are, not we become. And we don't earn it either. It's a free gift of God, to say, as it says in Romans 3.24. Justified by His grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it will take place. Because in Philippians 1.6, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
So Paul, working out our salvation, is not talking about justification. He is talking about actually sanctification. He is talking about practical, progressive holiness in a believer's life while awaiting the return of Christ. We are saved, but we have work to do. We need to become more like Jesus. We need to live by the example set by Christ. Go back to 5 through 11. What did Christ do? He gave up everything, right? He became obedient even unto death. What are we to do? We're to give up everything. We're to become obedient even unto the point of death. We are to follow Christ's examples. And he doesn't suggest this either. He doesn't say, you know what? Uh, I'm not there, so it might be a good idea for you guys to work out your salvation. It might, you, know, you might want to just you know, give that a shot. No, he says, work out your salvation. It's an imperative, and an imperative based on what Christ did. So it is a big deal. And it means that we have to strive to have servants' hearts, thinking of others more highly than ourselves. It means that we have to demonstrate love for others by caring, serving, praying. It means we strive to live according to the examples and teaching of the greatest master of all, Jesus, the Christ. How do we do that? Well, we're called to be submissive submissive to God. So we're to submit to God, number one. Right? As Jesus was totally submissive to the Father, you know, we're to do the same. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but we're to strive to live according to the desires and wishes of the Father. And I'm not talking about a legalistic kind of fashion. I'm not talking about do's and don'ts. Okay, well, I'll avoid this and, you know, and I'll be really nice and I'll go to church and everything. Inside, while inside, our hearts are cold. You know, that's like whitewashed tombs, right? You look really, really good on the outside, but the inside, there's nothing there. Okay? No, I'm talking about a heart that loves God so much that you want to do everything to be like Jesus. When you wake up in the morning, the first thought you have is, I want to be like Jesus. When you go to bed at night, the last thought you have should be, I want to be like Jesus. And everything in between needs to be filled with, I want to represent Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. There's just so much love for Jesus and what he's done. So much appreciation for the fact that he gave up everything and died on the cross. That you're willing to just sell out for Christ. None of this kind of wishy-washy faith. You're willing to be sold out and be totally in love with Jesus. There is no other idol. There is no other love greater than Jesus. That's the kind of submission that Paul is talking about. Jesus didn't go to the cross, all right? Kind of like, okay, yeah, I'll go, whatever. We're, we're satisfying prophecy. We got to, you know, we got to live out history here. No, he went to the cross out of love for the Father. There was love in his heart, and that's what we need to have. He went willingly, submissively. So we are to submit to God. And the other thing we need to do is to cling to the things of God and not the world. We need to stay away from the sinful things of the world. Those things that want to grab and pull us into sin, that pull us away from Christ. In John, uh, 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love the world 
or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the father, the love of the father is not in him. So recently, Joanne and I went to, to Hilton Head, right? And we get in the car and we're driving, driving down. We knew what route we were going. We had, you know, I had my iPhone and I had the map all set and everything else. And I was listening to whatever name, give me directions, you know, whatever name is that's in your phone. I don't know who that is. But we're going and we're, we, it's very positive, right? We have a direction, we're excited and we're headed in that, in that way. But all along the road, what, are, what else are we doing? We're driving defensively, right? And we're looking for pitfalls. We're looking for things that are going to hurt us. We're looking for that, that semi that's going to change lanes and squeeze us into the median. Or we're looking for that debris that's in the middle of the road that we could run over or a pothole or something, you know, that could really cause us to, to wreck. So it's the positive part, but it's also the avoidance part. And you've got to have both. You've got to be submitted to God, but then you've got to avoid sin. And clearly, that's what Paul is saying that we need to do. We can't love the world or the things of the world. And we've got to remember that we're living in a time that's dark. Paul refers to the darkness, the twistedness of this world. People don't really love and embrace Christianity, right? They're pretty hostile to Christianity, and it's getting worse. And they don't really appreciate the things that, that, that we stand for. And so it's getting harder and harder and more difficult for us to, to maintain our Christian values because we're looking so much more like um, Christ and not the world. And the world doesn't like it. So we have to stay the course, friends. We've got to be strong in this because it's not going to get easier and that's why paul says in verse 15 that we're children of god we got to recognize we're not children of this world we're children of god we've been reborn we don't belong to the world we belong to god and we have a special bond with the father as a result of that and that needs to motivate us to want to avoid the sinful nature of the world so be submissive to god but then avoid the things of the world Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached the following, which I think summarizes this really well. The world is godless, ready to make fun of God and religion. It is not interested in God. It panders to the flesh and ridicules everything that is connected with God. But the New Testament says that working out my salvation means avoidance of everything that is opposed to God. So, submit... And avoid. The next thing that he talks about is this context of how we're supposed to do this. And he talks about fear and trembling. And it's, it's kind of an unusual phrase, right? He, he's talking about the fact that, that we're saved. And, and he, he talks about the assurances that we have that, to be saved. And then, and then he talks about this idea of being in fear and and Paul was a very confident guy, and it's kind of like, why are you, why, why are you bringing this up? What are you talking about? So let me let me say what I think Paul is not saying, and then address what I think he is talking about. Okay, Paul's not talking about fear, being fearful of losing our salvation. So once we're saved, we're saved. 
Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God's intent is for those who place their faith in Christ to be saved in the end. We don't have to fear that at all. We're saved, and God is going to carry that to the end. We're there. We're in heaven, all right? And I don't believe that Paul is saying that we are to be fearful of death either. Paul embraced death. Paul wanted to die. Paul said, hey, listen, I want to be with the Father. I want to be with Jesus. I'm willing to be here and, and so forth. That's fine. But I really do want to be with God. And so he's not afraid of death. So what is it that we should be fearful of? Well, I think what Paul is trying to get at is this aspect of we're to be in awe we're to be in awe of god we're to be in awe we're just supposed to have so much respect and admiration and awe for god the holiness the glory the power and the might what we saw back in isaiah to just embrace this idea of god as majestic and holy and powerful that that should really really causing us this idea of and this this feeling of respect and admiration. The other thing that I think he's saying is, you know what? We shouldn't lose our perspective on what would have happened if indeed Christ did not save us. If Christ did not save us, we would be under the wrath of God. And we don't talk about that much, right? But the wrath of God is a pretty big deal. And Jonathan Edwards got it, and he, uh, and I want to read to you something from this famous sermon of him, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he was written for non-believers to help non-believers understand the perilous condition that they're in. And it says this, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from following, falling into the fire every moment. Wow. Pretty, pretty straightforward. But you know what? Without Christ, that's where we would be. We would be absolutely under the wrath of God. And, but as believers, we are not. We're saved from that. Yet Paul is saying, look, you need to have this on respect for what could have been. I was driving down 23 in Michigan, going to pick up my daughter. It was May. She was done with school for the, for the year, and I had to pack up her stuff and bring her back from Grove City, which is in western Pennsylvania. And it was at the end of a long work day, and I'm driving down, and the sun's pouring in, and we get to this construction zone south of Ann Arbor, and traffic is slowed to a stop. We're just crawling, and I fell asleep. And I woke up in the rear end of a flatbed semi, right? The front end of my car is just crushed. 
Now, the semi didn't even know I hit him. He just kept going, right? But I pulled off to the side of the road, and I was safe. I was fine. I was alive. I'm, you know, I wasn't bleeding or anything like that. And I'm, I'm going, wow, this is great. But I'm sitting there, and I'm going like this. I'm shaking. I'm trembling. I'm scared half to death. Why? Because when you think about what could have been, right? What could have happened to me? And that God spared me from that. And you just go, wow. And I know that we've all experienced that in one way, shape, or form. We've hit danger and stared it right in the face and we escaped it. And we just sit there and go, whoa, that's close, right? The ladder tips, you know, and you almost go over and catch your balance. Paul's saying, look, you need to have a healthy fear and respect of the fact That if I hadn't sent my son and my son hadn't been obedient to me, you'd be in hell. And we take that for granted. And the third thing is, I think we need to be in awe of the fact that God loves us enough that he's willing to do that. There's a tenderness and a love on the part of God that he's willing to do and and have his son die on our behalf. So that's what I think he means by the fear and trembling um, that we're supposed to under, you know, to go through and understand. Now, if you go into 13, we're still in verse 13, you'll see it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So sometimes we get pretty discouraged, right? We, we go along and we're like, oh, man, I want to be like Christ, but ah, I, j- I get mad, I get angry, I... You know, I um, lie or whatever it is, you know, I'm I'm not real truthful. You know, you just get tired of the battle. But I want you to understand that Paul understood that as well. He knew the Philippians needed some encouragement. And so that's why he said it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Folks, God is at work in you. And I'm not going to go into depths about what that means theologically. You know, it says work out our salvation. Well, we have a certain responsibility in that, right? But he's saying that God is the one that works in you and so forth. There's a whole sermon just on that. But I can say is that we can take pleasure and confidence in the fact that God does the work. It is God that is working you. Do you get that? That's amazing. He calls us to something and then he does the work. There's something really, really beautiful about that. So don't be discouraged. And that's where Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion. We can have confidence that God is at work in us. Don't despair. Don't give up. Take things to God in prayer. Give it to God. He's at work. So now let's move to 14 through um, 18. And we, we start those series of verses. Paul says, do not grumble. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Isn't that kind of a weird set of words and, statement, and a statement following everything that we've been talking about? You know, the glory and majesty of God, seeking God in fear and trembling and um, just being in awe. And then he goes, do not grumble. And I'm like, where, where are you going, Paul? Well, 
what Paul was really getting at is our faith. Paul was alluding to the to the Israelites out in the wilderness. And what did the wilderness what did the Israelites do in the wilderness when they lost sight that God is at work and was faithful to complete what it is that he called them to? They started to grumble. <laughs> they started to complain. And then after they grumbled and complained, what happened? They started to get into disputes. They started to argue with each other. And then it just kind of fell apart. So Paul was saying, look, if you become stubborn and you don't maintain your focus on Christ, if you don't humble yourself like Christ did, then you're going to start to grumble and complain and you're going to end up in arguments and everything else. So the next time you're in this this moment of just being sour and moody and grumbling, just say, where is my faith? Where is my faith in Christ? And that's one of the things that I get concerned about in the life of a church. We've got to maintain that focus on Christ because when we don't, then people just start to, to really grumble and then there's divisions, little little petty divisions that start to occur. And we get all bent on the wrong things. I mean, there have been churches that have been divided over the, the color of carpet, right? Or the style of music. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it can get crazy. But then Paul also talks about the fact that we are to be blameless and innocent. Not just grumbling, don't grumble and complain. He also says, be blameless and innocent. We're to, we're to live lives in such a way that we give no cause to anyone bringing a charge against us. When we are humble, loving, forgiving, not holding to bitterness, serving others, not given to greed, not motivated by power, money, or success, when we seek the welfare of others before our own, when we're slow to anger, calm, peaceful, when we live pure lives avoiding sin, when we do not judge others, when we avoid negative conflict, when we do all these things, people see the attractiveness of Jesus. You get that? People see the attractiveness of Jesus. Sometimes we as Christians aren't the most most um, attractive people. <laughs> we can be fairly mean and downcast. I can, um, one time when we were driving back from Hilton, or flying back from Hilton Head, I was reading a book, and um, and I just got struck by the fact that, you know, Bill, you're a pretty grumpy person. You're, you know? And uh, you're, and, I, and I'm thinking, you're going to spend eternity with Christ, and, and that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And you don't live like it. You don't live like you're happy. And I said, this has got to change. So I took on this joyful spirit. And I got back to Columbus, Indiana, where we were living at the time. And I went into this flower shop. And I, I was buying flowers for Joanne. You know? And I wanted to be uplifting and everything. And I'm talking to the clerks behind the counter and everything. And the clerk turns around to get something. And she turns. She looks at me and she goes points at me and she goes, you can come back in here anytime you want. And I go, yeah? She goes, you're so joyful and happy. You just brighten the place up. Well, I'll tell you, people, no one's ever said that to me before. All right? And I'm like, okay, you know, this works, you know? And But the point of that is, 
when we live that victorious life, when we live a joyful life, when, we're, when we understand who we are in Christ, and we, we smile, and we live joyously, and we're lights in the world. This is what Paul's talking about, being lights in the midst of a crooked, twisted generation. We can set the example. Second Peter 1.19 says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark spot. When I was with Dow Corning Corporation, I went down to Georgia Marble. They're a supplier of calcium carbonate, and that's mined, and they go way down deep into the, into the earth. And um, we went down, I think, seven, seven stories. And uh, the guy says, hey, you want to see something cool? And I go, yeah, what's that? And he turns the lights out on the truck. I'm telling you, it was dark. There was no light. It wasn't the kind of dark where if you waited a while, you, you know, your eyes would adjust to the light, whatever light was there, because there was no light there. And you put your hand right here, you couldn't even... You couldn't see your hand right in front of your face. You couldn't even know. You didn't even know it was there. And then he goes after a few minutes of that, which is really creepy, by the way. I'll tell you, it it creeps you out knowing you're way, way under in this mountain, right? And there's no light, and you're wondering if this guy's walking off, or you know, and and something's going to happen. You stand up, and you're all alone. So he goes, "Hey, you want to see something cool?" And I go, "Yeah." And he he turns on this this flashlight. The small flashlight. And you know what? It illumined the whole cavern. This small little light. You know, that's what you are. That's what we are. We're small little lights in a dark world. And we can bring such joy. And we can show people who Christ is simply by being blameless, simply by loving caring, serving, not thinking of ourselves, putting other people first, just trying to bring joy into people's lives. Isn't it a wonderful thing to bring a smile to somebody's face? I just love that. So Paul is saying, hey, you're in a dark place. Be a light. How do you do that? Well, he goes on to talk about holding fast to the word. And, um, and by that, th- there is a, a significant add to that. Because he says that if we don't hold on to the word, our labor will be in vain. When, when um, In verse 16, it says, Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. If you don't hold on to the word, you're not going to know what to do. And he says, hold fast. I mean, and you don't hold fast to something that's insecure, right? If, if, or, or not secured. If you, you hold on to something that's movable, you, you're going to move all around, right? So he's saying, hold fast to this. This is secure. You can trust this. You can know this. You need to love it. You need to read it. You need to worship it. You need to just be in the Word. You know, I think of Mark Rogup. He's over in London today, right? And he's riding the subways. I'm sure he is. So, and he's getting on there, and he's going to have to hold fast to that pole, or he's going to get tossed all around, right? Well, we need to do that to Scripture. We need to hold fast. 
And Paul says, your success in your Christian walk depends on it. And he, Paul talk, goes on to talk about being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And there he's talking about the drink offering that was poured over the meat as the meat was lifted up and burned, you know, to, to the glory of God. And he's saying, you know, it, and it, it may have referred to the fact that he knew he was going to be martyred soon and he was going to die soon. But it also may have meant, you know what, we're to be living sacrifices. We are to pour ourselves out and, and be willing to just go all out for other people. Again, in the, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, it says, he, he wrote, Beloved Christian people, let us be up and doing. Let us take the torch of the word of God and wave it abroad so that the darkness of the world may be illumined. And men and women may be translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of God's dear Son. What a privilege we have to be lights, to be light bearers at this dark and difficult hour in the history of our world. Father, friends, our, our motivation for being lights is the work of Christ. And I have just four things that I want to be in prayer about and, and I think about and I want to leave you with. These are just my personal thoughts. One, I just ask that you would pray that God would reveal His majesty and glory to you. You know, there isn't anything, anything other than Christ. Nothing else will do it for you. If you think so, you're, you know, you're, you're delusioned because... Christ is the only answer. And so my prayer is that that you would be in awe of his holiness, his greatness, his splendor, his majesty, that that would just overwhelm you. Secondly, I, I pray that we would humble ourselves using Christ's examples as a motivation that we don't allow ourselves to get tangled up in the world, but seek holiness. You know, guys, I, I have been in this church for three years now. I've been in ministry for ten. I was involved in a camping ministry before I came here. And I'll tell you what, these three years, there have been nights that I go home and my heart aches. And I feel this weight that that it's, I can hardly breathe. And Joanne goes, are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm fine. And what, what it is, is watching how sin can destroy the lives of people. The hurt, the destruction, the pain the hole that people get into that they can't get out, it kills me. So my appeal is, please, be on your knees and humble yourself and say, I want to submit to God and I just, 
I just want to follow him and avoid the sin of the world. I beg you. Third, you know, don't grumble and dispute, but but trust God to do his work in you. As bad and as confusing as things appear, sometimes we think God is just so far away. And I ask you not to give up, but to trust. Hang on. Don't grumble and complain. There's nothing that can divide a church faster than that. There's nothing that can create division in relationships and grumbling and complaining. Folks, as believers, we have eternity in heaven. You know, we have, we have a statement in our house, you know. We look at each other and we go, if we start complaining about something, someone will say, yeah, that's a first world problem, you know. And um, a lot of our problems and issues and the things that we grumble and complain about um, are first world issues. And lastly, be as lights in the world. Let your humility and your kindness show the rest of the world the wonderful beauty of Christ. You can be ambassadors for Jesus. That's a beautiful thing. You can be a light in a dark world. That is awesome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for worship. I thank you for your word and just the way that you have spoken through Paul. I pray that as we leave here, that we would just have this desire to illumine everybody around us. That people would just light up in our presence because we share the love and the beauty of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need somebody to pray with, there should be people up front here that can do that. Thank you. Have a great day. You're dismissed.